morning. How's everyone doing? We're going to clap? We're going to clap? We're going to do that? Okay. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them to Acts 16. Um, if I've not met you, uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're with us today. Um, if you're a guest, we've been walking through the book of Acts. And while you're turning there, if you have your Bibles or while other people are turning there, let me tell you why we felt like it was a good idea in this moment in time to sit with the book of Acts in a thoughtful way. Um, As the cultural storms of 2020 began to rage, uh, starting with COVID and now with the elections, something became very clear to me. Um, There are many Bible-believing church-attending lovely Christians um, who have really lost their way amidst this storm. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Um, Before I do, the book of Acts chronicles the birth of the church. It is the origin story, if you're into X-Men. And therefore, if you call yourself a Christian gives you some idea of the shoulders that you are standing on, right? It sets a standard of what it means to be part of the family of God and shows us the roots that are grounding and have ground the church throughout the ages. And when you are lost, you have two points of reference um, to get yourself back on course. You have where you came from and you have where you're going. And we said, let's sit with where we've come from and allow the Bible to bear its weight on our experience as Christians and ask some questions. Maybe number one, where is it potentially that we've gotten off course? Where have we let, as Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, other loyalties, other pursuits, other agendas push us off center of what it means to be the people of God in any time, in any nation, in any place. And one of the things that I'm hoping that you are seeing as you've been sitting with the book of Acts is that this, Christian citizenship in the family of God overshadows and outshines in significance and enjoyment any citizenship we may have in any nation at any given time in history. I love America, guys. America. Love it, right? I'm thankful for the foundations of this nation. I'm thankful for the historical ideas of re- ideals of religious freedom as one of us. I'm thankful for that, y'all. Thankful. As great as this nation is, it is not first and foremost your home or your source of security if you call yourself a Christian and therefore cannot shake what Peter would call a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. See, if you call yourself a Christian, your sense of joy and security and comfort rests on something that is deeper than the rising and falling of nations. We should just sit with that a while, shouldn't we? In the midst of the cultural storm that we find ourselves in, having a deeper well to be a person of substance would make, what kind of people would that make us? 
who understand that the nation in which we live, as great as it is, there's my baby, just run around. <laughs> the nation that we live in, as great as it is, compared to the souls that sit around you, the nation that we live in will fade away. It will pass. The soul sitting next to you is immortal and therefore has greater significance and greater meaning, maybe in the way that we engage with one another over and above in the way that we engage our nation. If you are a Christian, you guys ready for this one? <laughs> Who is elected is secondary in significance, y'all. Is it important? Yeah, absolutely. Should we engage? Yes. Should we assert godly influence in healthy ways in which we can? Yes. Is it ultimate? No. Is it supreme? Not if you're a Christian. If you are not a Christian, then yeah, it's pretty supreme. What else can you pull from? And let's chat. What other source do you have? other than the nation in which you live for security and safety and refuge, right? If your peace and joy as a Christian crumble under the threat of the wrong guy getting elected, who are you looking to for salvation? Who are you putting your hope in to bring and sustain life and joy and peace to your existence here and now? And if you are looking to worldly, physical means, a man, okay, or a man-made structure, like politics, to bring and sustain life and joy and peace. If you're looking to any man to bring and sustain true life, then you should be freaking out. <laughs> because how fickle and unstable are men. Right? Many a man proclaim his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? Proverbs 20. Men make crummy gods. Men make crummy gods. So the New Testament is going to talk about our physical citizenship in an, any nation, through any point in time, as secondary. Pay taxes? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, don't get out of that one. Submit to authority? Yes. Pray for those in authority? Yes. But that our true citizenship is in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, whose king is the only truly faithful man who has ever walked the face of the earth, whose love and sacrifice for us is brighter than the sun and that he is the only king worthy of our trust and full devotion and absolute loyalty. So, when self-proclaiming Christians have not only given in to hatred, but used Christianity to justify such hatred, a lot of times based on political views, use Christianity to justify hatred and contempt of others, you have lost your way as a Christian. Maybe not as a political thinker. Maybe not as a social commentator. Maybe you've never seen things clear, more clearly in those in ways. But as a Christian, if you are justifying hate and contempt for other groups of people with Jesus, you've lost your way as a Christian. Okay? You've become blind to his love and perhaps the whole reason he came in the first place. So it stands to reason that if we can sit with the community first created by the love and power of the spirit of Christ himself. In that process, we may see areas in which we have deviated for whatever reason, for whatever other agenda, right? From true biblical Christianity. Does the logic make sense to you? Thank you, someone, it does. All right, good. So there's the why. Now let's get to it, okay? 
We pick it up today in Acts 16. Um, And I'm going to start in verse 13. But after, let me give you a little context here. After some serious theological questions have been settled in Jerusalem, and you can go to last week for that, about the nature and reach of Jesus and the work of Christ, right? Paul and his new partner, Silas, remember last week got in a fight and parted ways with Barney under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, which is kind of walked out in verses one through 13, go to the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Paul has had a vision of a man uh, saying, hey, come help us. And so they sail to Philippi. Philippi, that's the leading city of the district of Macedonia. Macedonia, can't say that word. This is the birth of the church at Philippi, who would later receive the letter of Philippians, okay? When from a prison cell, Paul would write a letter to this crew of people to encourage them primarily to be joyful in God. So today we sit with how the church in Philippi got started, okay? And we'll see two main Gentiles, remember these are non-Jews, right? That will help found the new church um, and their conversion story, story. And one is a savvy businesswoman and the other is a Roman Gentile guard. So let's see how the missionaries fare in Philippi. And if you've been with us, you can probably expect what's gonna happen because it will repeat the pattern that has happened over and over and over again, okay? So let's pray and then we'll get into the scripture. Jesus, I ask that you would Grant us now, Father, the peace of the Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, would you come and would you settle the dust? Lord, for those of us in this room who are frustrated, maybe even angry, God, would you speak peace to us, Lord? God, for those of us in this room uh, for whom the dust has just been kicked up in our lives and we're not sure which way's right or left, and we're confused. God, would you comfort us, Lord? Would you cause the dust to settle so we can see the landscape around us and begin to traverse the terrain, the rocky terrain, Lord, often um, of this life? Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we pick it up in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, it should be on the screen. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the town of Thyatria, Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And after that, she was baptized in her household as well. And she urged us saying, if you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. I love that. (laughs) She won them over, right? So Lydia is not a Jew. And yet she is drawn to the God of the Jews. And she's an uptown, almost certainly wealthy fashionista. All right, so think of a wildly successful New York fashion queen. She is a seller of purple goods. For us, that just is a color. For them, purple was the color of royalty, royalty. Kings and queens would go to Lydia when they needed a new whatever, right? And her conversion for us is such a, it has such a balancing effect if you look at the conversions throughout the whole book of Acts, especially compared to some of the other ones, because many of the conversions that we have seen have been supernatural and dramatic, have they not? Fire, wind, tongues, healings, visions, angels, 
people speaking in different languages, and none of those things happen here. And thus, we see that God uses all sorts of means to seek and save, and he is not constrained. Listen up. God is not constrained to do his work the same way for everyone all the time. Now, this is a liberating truth, especially if you grow up or in light of pressures to experience or display this or that supernatural gift in some Christian circles. Does that make sense? Some Christian circles will put a lot of pressure, a lot of high stakes expectation on one spiritual gift manifesting above others as proof of salvation. And if you grew up in a circle like that, this is a liberating truth for you today, that God uses all sorts of means and is not constrained to use the same means to save the hearts of his people. It says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. And that's it. (laughs) That's it. It's it's like boring, you know? She was just sitting there and the Lord opened her heart. And I'm reminded of John Wesley's description when he received the Holy Spirit, when he says his heart was strangely warmed, right? It's not dramatic. And yet she enters into supernatural Holy Spirit-filled life under the reign of Jesus. So 16, pick it up. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl, it's gonna get dicey today, who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, Luke, the author, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. So this is remarkable to us for several reasons. First of all, we have to wrestle with the idea of a spirit of divination, whatever that means, right? Uh, In the New Testament, uh, second of all, the fact that whatever this thing is that's asserting influence over this girl is revealing to her the truth of the gospel. So we're going to have to sit with this. N.T. Wright points out, the ancient Greek world knew all about divination and people regularly went to places like Delphi to ask the priestess of Apollo for advice on everything from getting married to making war. And like a compass needle swinging suddenly round to, a, to point to a new and powerful magnetic force, the unfortunate young woman found herself following Paul and Silas and yelling after them. This girl is somehow connected to some spirit. And if it's not an angel, we can presume it's on the other side, right? And it seems that way. Although it doesn't say it's a demon, the lack of clarity here is intriguing and mysterious to me. Most theologians would agree it is an evil spirit because of the way it's dealt with. But whatever it is, it enables her to tell the future, right? And shows her that these men are servants of the Most High God. And she's following them around, shouting this. So this is crazy. Y'all, use your brains here. Let's, Let's think about this. A dark, evil spirit is revealing to her truth. And she starts shouting it over and over again. Is this messing with anyone else's theology? This actually reinforces a biblical truth from the book of James about evil spirits. James 2.19 says, you believe that God's one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even spiritual darkness knows the truth about God and shudders. It's fascinating. 
We see this in Luke 8 as well, when the demon who possesses the man calls Jesus the son of the most high God and begs him, don't torment me, all right? Which might beg the question, if they know that Jesus is the son of God and that he is in fact the way of salvation, like they told this girl, are they saved? Is that not how we qualify salvation? By belief? They believe. They know it's true. Does simply knowing something is true equate to salvation? Can you not know something is true and hate it? Is that a possibility? Thus, is true saving knowledge, not simply knowing the truth, but having the ability to delight in the truth, to rejoice in that truth, not just knowing it's true, but knowing that it is beautifully and gloriously true. Christian salvation, y'all, is loving the truth. It is not just knowing the truth. Demons know the truth and shudder. Christian salvation is delighting in the truth. The demon is not saved because he does not have the capacity to rejoice in the truth that he knows is true, right? It is true, but for them, it is a horrible time bomb of destruction truth. John Piper says this, saving faith is belief with a joyful and glad embrace of the Lordship of Jesus as one's supreme treasure. The devil admits his power and final victory, but he hates it. Only the Holy Spirit, only by the Holy Spirit can we love it. And that is what makes us Christians. Not just believing the same true facts that in fact the devil believes. When the devil remembers the teachings of Jesus and believes it as fact, he hates it. He does not love the teachings of Christ. He does not cherish it or treasure it. That's the great truth about Christianity. It's not just knowing, it is rejoicing, treasuring in the truth. Do you glory in it? Do you love the truth? So this girl's walking around possessed by this spirit, yelling the truth behind Paul and Silas. And 18 says this, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, <laughs> love that about Paul, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. Now in reality, what were they really disturbing? Their profitability. In reality, what they were disturbing was their commercial viability. And they said, they made up a, a lie. They are advocating customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. What were those specifics of the accusations? Well, we're not told because they're lies, the distortions of the truth. These dudes were upset because they lost their servant girl who made them money. 22, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates, that's the Roman official authorities, all right? So the government gets involved. Tore the garments off of them, Paul and Silas, and gave orders to beat them with rods. So if you have an idea of Christianity that says all things will go well, you have to deal with this. 
and when they had inflicted many blows upon them. See, we have this idea that if we'll do the right thing, obey the Lord, then all of a sudden our life's just gonna open up and work out. And yet here we see the exact opposite. These boys are doing exactly what God had called them to do, and it results in being beaten with rods with many blows. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. So I want to be sure we're getting the picture. These boys are stripped to their skinnies and beaten severely with rods with many blows. And they are thrown in the inner prison. So that's the inner prison is the cell under the normal prison. So that's like the cave. That's the gutter prison. That's the prison where all of the fluids and non-desirables of the upper prison go to. So they're beaten, bloodied, bruised, naked, severely beaten, right? This enraged mob had ripped their clothes off, beat them senseless, and thrown them into the prison. For what? For what? For liberating a slave girl from demonic oppression. Now, we are not told the details about this girl, but from other places in scripture, uh, when evil spirits assert authority over humans, uh, we see, we can pretty safely assume that there were other negative associations that were happening in this girl's life because of this evil spirit asserting its influence over her. Uh, side effects, you could say, right? Matthew 17, um, we're told that it's an evil spirit that causes seizures and terrible suffering and throws a boy into fire and water. Mark 5, it's an evil spirit that causes a man to live among the tombs and cry out day and night and cut himself with stones. And this girl is freed. She's healed. She's liberated from the darkness that was over her life, right? And it's so interesting, y'all. In this scenario, the owners of this girl had a beneficial arrangement with darkness. That's what's happening here. What we see in this text is a marriage between darkness and livelihood. It's an arrangement between someone's well-being, someone's commercial viability, and depending on darkness for the sustaining of that. What an interesting paradox that we see in this scripture. When we make arrangements with darkness, agreements with darkness, you will always see the liberating power of Jesus as a threat, just like these men did. When you make agreements with darkness, you'll see the living, the fountain of living water as a danger to avoid instead of a healing power to drink from. We'll see the path of life as dangerous and threatening because we might have to forfeit our sin by walking on that path. When we depend on sin to make it, to get by, we knowingly, when we knowingly allow sin to fulfill legitimate needs, livelihood, making money, that's a legitimate need, y'all. But when we make an arrangement, an agreement with darkness in order to fulfill that, you have made an agreement with darkness and the light of Christ doesn't heal for you, it burns. We chatting? These businessmen had made an agreement with darkness and when the light of God's liberating kingdom dawned on the horizon, they were enraged. For them, it did not bring life, it brought death. 
And in some ways, I think it's the truth that Charles Spurgeon was getting at when he said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And by that he meant the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. I think it's also what Paul meant when he said, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing, and among those who are perishing. So the woman of Christ, among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from life to life. And to others, we are a fragrance from death to death. This is interesting, isn't it? We like to think of the freedom and the healing and the liberating power of God as something that everyone, of course, wants. Who doesn't want the love of God? Who doesn't want the forgiveness of God? But when we have made agreements with darkness in which we depend on that darkness for our livelihood and sense of well-being, then the liberating power of God is not to us a source of life. It's a, it's a threat. And it's something that we avoid. It's why we hide in the shadows. It's why we don't come to church often. Isn't it? In this scenario, the same power that brought freedom and liberation to the slave girl brought commercial disruption and frustration to these men, all because of how they had positioned themselves in relation to darkness. So the obvious question we must ask ourselves: where are you benefiting from an agreement with darkness, right? Isn't that the obvious question? Where are we clutching sin to our chest and avoiding being known because in some way we are benefiting from an agreement we have made with sin and darkness. We make all sorts of agreements with darkness. Let's talk about this. I'll give, a, I'll give a little darkness in. I'll give a little darkness a foothold here if it will make me feel better about myself, right? I will slander that person if it will make me feel like a superior person. I'll give in for a second to satisfy my sexual appetite. I'll lie if it will get me that job promotion, that's an agreement with darkness. And when we depend on darkness to get by, we have become enemies of the cross, enemies of the light of Christ, right? All sorts of agreements. I only depend on this because no one is affected, or I'll only do this because there's zero collateral damage, which really means I'll only do this because no one knows, and if you apply that thinking to any other thing, you know it's wrong, right? We make all sorts of agreements with sin. And the question is, what benefit from sin are you deriving so much that you refuse the liberation of Jesus and might even see his liberation as a threat? We often think, y'all, that sin is this horrid, dirty business that we can easily see and avoid. Let me tell you something, y'all. Sin always wears a mask. Always wears a mask, all right? We hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, right? Because it wears the mask of justice, does that make sense? Yeah. We lust and look at things we ought not because it wears the mask of, well, this is better than destroying my relationships. We hold others in contempt and look down on them and refuse them kindness because it wears the mask of personal affirmation and even religious holiness at times, right? And on and on and on we could go. Sin always wears a mask. Where would yielding to the liberation of Jesus threaten the sin you enjoy, right? And in that place, you have to admit 
that sometimes in our heart of hearts, we have positioned ourselves before the Lord in such a way that even his goodness can be perceived as a threat, not a blessing. And that's exactly what we see in this event. It's exactly why these men start a lynch mob, why they lie, why they beat Paul and Silas brutally because the power of Jesus had upset their dependence on darkness and therefore was a threat to their way of living, right? When we make agreements with darkness, we become those who Jeremiah 6 prophesied about. When it says, behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. See, it's our ability to delight in the truth that makes us Christians. Acts 16, let's go back to the story. So this is now the second movement of the story. And we'll go through this quicker. About midnight, Paul and Silas was praying and singing hymns to God. Because that's what you'd want to do if you were just beaten senseless and bloodied and naked, right? And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds, their chains were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You guys remember a couple weeks ago, remember when the jailers failed and Peter escaped and Herod's like, killed him, right? Not a good season for, you know, job rights and stuff like that. Um, So this guy's like, I'm just gonna end it, right? Supposing that all the prisoners have escaped, but Paul, 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, same dude that chained them up. is now washing their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. He was clearly delighting in the truth of the forgiveness of God, right? 34, and then when he brought them into the house and set food before them, he rejoiced along with, there it was, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God, 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police. Now, this is very interesting. Listen to this. Sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. So the magistrates this time don't bust the door down. They don't claw and and start a mob. They ask, that's interesting. They're clearly a little unsettled, right? But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And the police reported these words to the magistrate and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. There's a lot of context there we're not gonna really get into. But they, so they came and apologized to the men, okay? And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So all of this because he found out, they they found out they were Roman citizens. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and and they go back and see all the brothers and and then they depart. So for the governing officials, it was the power of Roman citizenship and the legal protection that citizenship ensured that checked their violence against the men. And Paul would use the same tactic, actually in Acts 22, uh, where he reveals he's a Roman citizen by birth. See, it was illegal to beat or kill a Roman citizen without trial. It's kind of 
one of the great legacies of the Roman Empire up until this day, which was at least in theory rule of law, right? It's where we kind of get some of these uh, roots. But a non, non-citizens could be beaten and killed, and who cares, right? But if you were born of a Roman parents, then you were a Roman citizen um, and you had legal protection. And so Paul, we know because he was a Pharisee, probably born into a wealthier family who had purchased their Roman citizenship potentially. Um, but of course... So there's something in the text, right? But of course, the most startling and provoking bit of this passage is the picture we can see in our imagination of two men stripped of their clothes, bloodied, beaten black and blue, probably swollen faces, maybe missing a tooth or two, right? In chains, sitting in the putrid darkness of the cell under the cell. And one of them says through swollen lips, hey, let's sing that new Pat Barrett song. You know, right? When you couldn't get any lower, when things seemed to be as worse as they could possibly be, like you can't picture a more oppressive scenario, can you? Beaten, bloodied, in chains, with human feces all around you, in darkness. And what we're seeing is something profound. What we're seeing is something unbelievably liberating. It's what the people of God do. They do the unimaginable to the unbeliever. They do what those who don't believe would call insanely stupid. They worship. These men had absolutely nothing to point to as to why they should be thankful. I mean, let's be honest, right? Is that the moment you'd say, man, I just feel like singing. Huh. Now we feel like singing when everything's well and life is good and the roses are blooming and the sun is out. That's when we feel like singing. And yet here these men are in this absurd scenario saying we're gonna worship, we're gonna pray. So let's just chat for a second and then we'll get out of here, right? Is this how you respond to difficulty? How do you respond when things go dark, y'all? Can we be honest in church? When stuff gets disappointing, when things are overwhelmingly oppressive. Like, yo, man, they get the wrong order at lunch and our day is ruined. I didn't order tomatoes, right? Take it back. (laughs) What we're seeing is Christian joy and peace and wholeness and worship and confidence that clearly does not derive its strength from physical earthly circumstances. Isn't that what we're seeing? Or you could say it this way. If our worship as a Christ follower is spiritual, it's because it's rooted in spiritual reality. If our worship is worldly, it's because it's rooted in worldly realities, i.e. the guitar was out of tune, (laughs) right? I don't like this song. My job is hard. Life is hard. I don't deserve the bad circumstance that I'm enduring right now. I don't deserve the sickness that I'm enduring right now. If any people didn't deserve the horrible persecution they are having to go under, it's these men obeying, obedience, walking in faithfulness. And yet they find themselves in horribly oppressive situations. And we often would look at a scenario like that and say, why on earth would they sing a worship song, Right? They they have no reason to worship. And if we feel that way, I think Paul would want to come alongside us and say there might be some blindness in your heart when it comes towards why we should worship as Christians. He might suggest that we have in some ways drifted from our ability to see the glory 
of the forgiveness and the love of God, right? The historical fact of redemption. In the end, y'all, there are two paths. Then we'll, then we'll get out of here. There's one path in which our physical suffering and worldly adversity is increasingly eclipsing the glory of God, the love of God, and the truth of God. Can I say that again? This is the first path. One in which our physical suffering, our worldly adversity is increasingly eclipsing the glory of God and the love of God and the truth of God. That's one path. The other path is the path in which the beauty and the attributes of God are increasingly eclipsing any suffering or adversity we may have to endure in this life. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? There's two paths. There's two paths we can take. One in which we let the suffering of this world overshadow and outshine the goodness of God, and the other in which we increasingly let the goodness of God outshine and overshadow the suffering in this world. One path leads to death, despair, and complaining, and darkness. The other to freedom, joy, and salvation. Not just for you, but for those around you. When they worshiped, everyone's chains fell off. All of the doors were opened. Everyone's chains fell off. So true worship of the living God changes the atmosphere, y'all. It breaks bonds we could never break. It loosens chains and opens doors, and salvation comes to even the people who are the cause of the suffering right? Presumably the same guard that locked him up was the, was the guy who was about to kill himself and his whole household was saved. When we worship Christ, not because he's made all things convenient, not because things are going the way we want, but because of his surpassing beauty and worth, God's liberating truth shakes the very foundations of darkness. Do we get that? When we worship Christ because of his surpassing beauty, his goodness shakes the foundations of darkness and chains are loosened, y'all. The worship of the saints will always confound the worldly, even the worldly Christian, because they have eyes only to see the darkness, only the, the, only the difficulty. They see only the chains, only the beatings, only the imprisonments, right? Those who believe know a greater truth, a deeper truth, that he too has suffered greatly and that in his suffering, we've been granted life and that he tasted death so that even if we die, we live. That's the deeper well that we're invited into if we call ourselves Christians, right? It's why Paul would say to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's why in Acts 5, it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer the dishonor for his name. None of that makes sense to the worldly Christian. It's nonsense, right? To the worldly person, only has the physical world broken by sin from which to try to build some sense of happiness and joy in life on. We chatting? The worldly person only has the physical world broken by sin to try to build some sense of happiness on. Those who believe have a deeper well to draw from, a well that is not threatened by pain or sickness or suffering or even death. Are we missing out on biblical Christianity when we allow difficult circumstance to eclipse the glory and the beauty of Christ, right? In this instance, a circumstance that's insanely violent and horrific, circumstances that many of us can't even imagine what it would be like to be in, right? Have we even started to understand Christian joy if our joy is continually threatened by inconvenience, much less violence, persecution, and imprisonment? 
Paul and Silas worship in the darkness and in the dungeon, and they reveal the impotence of the darkness and the dungeon before the glory of God. Paul and Silas worship in the darkness and the dungeon, and they reveal the impotence of the darkness and the dungeon compared to the glory of Christ. You see, the darkness and the dungeon cannot endure true spiritual worship, right? Um, so I'm gonna skip some since we're kind of going late, but I wanna, I wanna give you some, uh, some context of something, okay? Uh, we're about to sing a song in a second. And, but before we sing that song, as we do, as we leave normally, I wanna tell you the history in the context um, in which that song was written, right? Again, most worship songs, we might imagine, are written in the peace and tranquility of all being well and, and you know, the sun is shining and all that kind of stuff, right? Horatio Spafford wrote the worship song that we're about to sing in the midst of overwhelming for what would meet, for what for me would be a crippling despair. Um, this hymn was written after traumatic events in Spafford's life. The first two were the death of his four-year-old son in the great Chicago fire of 1871, which ruined him financially. He had been a successful lawyer and had invested significantly in the property in the area of the Chicago uh, that was extensively damaged by the great fire. First two traumatic events death of his four-year-old son, the loss of his commercial interest. His business interests were further hit by the economic downturn of 1873, at which time he had planned to travel to Europe with his family. In a late change of plan, he sent the family ahead while he was delayed on business. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank after a collision with a sea vessel. And all four of Spofford's daughters died. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him the now famous telegram, saved alone. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write these words as his ship passed near where his daughters had died. He wrote the song over the waters where his daughters had drowned in. And the song goes, when peace like a river attendeth my soul, right? When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it's well. It's well with my soul. And as we sing the song, I want you to realize what he is pressing into that made his soul well in the midst of overwhelming sorrow. He calls to mind the death of Christ. He calls to mind that Christ regarded him at his lowest place that he died for his sin. He calls to mind that Christ is gonna return. He's gonna redeem all things, that he'll one day make all things well. And in that moment of deep sorrow and grief, he worships. Do we understand a kind of faith that can endure such crippling sorrow? Or is our faith resting on the sun shining and the flowers blossoming? Do we have a faith that can endure things like this? Do we have a faith that can endure not only difficulty, but persecution and suffering and imprisonment? There's nothing like suffering when it comes to the Christian church that causes the faithful of God to rise up and be strong. And there is nothing like suffering when it comes to the Christian church, when it causes those on the fringes to bail.
And I think we are seeing, even in our society today, a sense of suffering and adversity that's causing us to run to things which we truly think secure us and bring us joy and peace. We chatting? Let's sing this song together. Duck, come on up, man. You got good luck. You know, you're gonna have to muscle through it. I can't even say the lyrics without. Let me pray for us real quick. Stand with me and let's pray.